Thank you for downloading our podcast. Apostasy in Hebrews is looking to the provision, a tangible religion, and not the provider, God's promise confirmed in Christ and applied in the Spirit. So often, in the face of trials, we think that we need more than Christ. But Hebrews assures us that he really is all we need. Join us as we study the letter to the Hebrews, as we are encouraged and exhorted to continue on this earthly sojourn in the power of our great Melchizedekian priest. One of the struggles we have as human beings is to truly believe uh, that Christ is enough. Uh, We're inundated and communicated time and time again uh, that what we have is not going to last, it's not going to endure. And reality is, as we're conscious of the common curse, we know things wear out. There comes a time where not only do we feel uh, the weight of age, uh, but also there comes a time when things just need to be replaced. And so we can understand a mindset where we fall into a trap of thinking that a one-time work clearly is not going to be sufficient. We're going to need more. We're going to need a repetition. We're going to need a renewal because that one-time work is not enough. And so I think when we have this mindset and going and, and approaching Hebrews, this is by and large what it seems a writer's writing about, uh, where the audience doubts that a one-time work of Christ really is as good as a continual offering and continual priests and, and this lineage that we see. But yet we, we have this hammered once again um, as Hebrews begins to make his case of the significance of Christ. He's son of God from eternity, and he's also son of God according to his work. And so how does this truth really drive home the sufficiency of Christ? That he's good enough, he's everything we need, and we need nothing else outside of him. This is something that's difficult for us as humans to understand. Hebrews will give us a series of exhortations, but right now he's building the case of the significance and sufficiency of Christ. And so as we look at these uh, psalms, as I mentioned, sort of a cacophony of texts, it almost seems they're not really related, just a bunch of things thrown out there and put together but we'll find that there actually is an order, a structure, an intention uh, that's given to us. We have Jesus as son, Jesus is superior, Jesus is seated in heaven. That's where he's moving with these texts. And so let's begin with Jesus as son. Now as we know, as we heard last time in the introduction, verses 1 through 4, uh, the, the contrast that the author intends to make of the prophets, and then there's a singular testimony. These are not in competition. Uh, The prophets find their validity and confirmation in the one-time action and word from heaven. Jesus is that incarnate word. He has spoken. He is the better word, superior word. It's not that the prophets have a word that's inconclusive or, or a word that we can't know. But if Christ does not enter history, the prophetic word has no meaning. That's the intention of what's going on. So now we we move on. We say, okay, so what's the case 
that he's making. How is he going to prove this? How, how do we know that the Old Testament really is speaking of Christ in such a high and exalted way? We have in verse 5 where he asks this question, basically, for which of the angels did he ever say? Now, this question is repeated uh, later on uh, in, in the passage, doing bookends with the intention here. But here as it begins, for which of the angels did God ever say? Now, some individuals would say that this book is really addressing individuals who are struggling with the study of angels or angelography, you know, study of angels. And they're wrestling with whether Christ is a superior angel or son of God. And that's, that's part of what's going on, but I wouldn't say that that's the fundamental theme of Hebrews. I can certainly see the, the force of that argument, especially when we look at uh, these verses. But if we take the, the letter of the exhortation as a whole, it seems there's more going on. Because what do we have? Well, as I've already mentioned in the introduction we covered last week, the contrast in the prosecution is the Son is sufficient. He is Son of God. He is a word from heaven. He confirms a prophetic word. And so clearly it's an assertion, a proving that Christ is the Messiah. God himself has come to shepherd as he promised in Ezekiel 34, for instance. Going on then in Hebrews 2, verses 1 through 4, which we'll get into next week, that you have again sort of this building on the implications of this argument here. Now in 2, verses 1 through 4, uh, we have the understanding that as the Lord is the one who has revealed himself, there's a message that has come through angels. Uh, seems to be a reference to Deuteronomy 33, uh, 33 verse 2, with the testimony of the angels being there uh, with the giving of the law of the Mosaic arrangement. And so as, as this goes on, the point he's making is as angels bear testimony, comes authoritative ministers of God come from heaven, testifies to God being present with his people, it's still not superior to what we have in Christ. And so instead of arguing that Christ is a superior angel, or maybe some people fall into this, the, the reality of what he's prosecuting is Christ is superior, not because he's greater than the angels, but because he's son of God, uh, intrinsically his being, and he's the one who confirms himself as son. And so for Hebrews, he wants us to see the sufficiency of Christ. Uh, reading through the letter again, I would argue that's a fundamental theme. Christ is sufficient. All that we need. He is the one who validates and confirms. So how do we get here? And, and how does chapter 1 prove this? Well, as I mentioned, we have these uh, citations from the Psalms. And these are all citations from the Psalms or from the Psalter. Uh, the first citation in verse 5 is from Psalm 2 verse 7. Uh, this is an enthronement psalm. It's a praise of God, uh, an understanding that as the nations and the kings conspire against God and try and destroy him, uh, God laughs. And, and they're not going to do their will or, or, or the will of destroying God. And all they're conspiring and all what they're trying to do, they're not going to destroy the Lord. And so in Psalm 2 verse 7, what does the Lord say? Today I have begotten you. So he's speaking of an eternal son. 
an eternal son who will prevail, a son who's going to enter into history and do what? Be triumphant, uh, show that he is a faithful son. You take this quote in Psalm 2 verse 7, you think, for instance, of Christ at his baptism. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. Uh, the father does the same thing at the transfiguration where Christ manifests and shows a glorification. And so this, this movement, this declaration, is the author of Hebrews saying, listen, already here in Psalm 2 verse 7, the Lord has said that the eternal Son of God, who is begotten from eternity, is going to take on the flesh and do the will of God. This is why we say he's begotten from eternity, has the same uh, attributes as uh, the Father, he is the one who truly has the same genealogy from eternity. As the author will continue to prosecute this, not to mention what we've already seen in 1 verse 3. But continuing on, uh, we have another citation where we have uh, this citation from Psalm 89. Now this is a recollection of maybe a reference. This may be one of the exceptions that maybe not all these are from Psalms, but it's probably Psalm 89 that's recalling for us 2 Samuel 7. And what this is recalling for us is how this son is going to enter into history through the line of David, and this son is going to fulfill that Davidic promise, and he's going to rise up, and he's going to show himself as the perfect king of righteousness, Melchizedek, this king of righteousness, the one who's going to do his task. He's going to do it perfectly. And so this citation of Psalm 89 is a recollection for us that this reality, this promise is going to happen. Uh, David wants to build a house for God, what's the praise of God? He's wandered in the wilderness, lived in a tent. He's the one who is truly content in himself. He will establish a name. He will establish his house. So this is calling for us. The son who overpowers the rulers, the son who's going to be a faithful son and prove himself to be a, such a son. Now going on. So we have verse 5 going on to verse 6. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Now, this is a citation from Psalm 97, verse 7. And in this citation, we have this assurance that there's no power that's going to usurp God. Uh, when you think of Psalm 97, you have Psalm 93, beginning of the sojourn. You have Psalm 95, a warning of Israel falling away, testing, ending in Psalm 100 of the ultimate arrival at the end of of this sojourn where you end up in the temple praising God. That's the intention of God being with his people, the sojourn, the struggle. Psalm 97, in the midst of this, is reminding us that there's all these rulers that are trying to usurp the Lord. And yet all these little Elohims, whatever they may try and do, even the angels themselves end up worshiping God himself. So worshiping him is now attributing this to the Son. And so Hebrews, again, is giving proof that Jesus is Son of God from all eternity. Now going on uh, in this, when we consider this reality, right here, the, the point is made, Jesus is Son of God. That's the intention we have. That's what uh, verses 5 and 6 is trying to drive home. For which the angels of God say, well, none of them. 
Jesus is not an angel. Jesus is the Son of God from all eternity. He is the one who secures redemption. He is the one who accomplishes the plan of God. But going on then in verses 7 through 12, the prosecution here is making the case that Jesus really is the one who is superior. And so verse 7 where he says, Of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. So his point here is that there's overwhelming evidence, if you look at Christ, to be superior to everything. Not just angels, everything. And Psalm 104.4 is a bit of a controversial citation here. Uh, not that the psalm itself is problematic. But what he's citing is he's citing the Septuagint. Uh, the Septuagint attributes the angels as being his ministers as flames of fire. If you look at the original Hebrew text, the Hebrew text is getting at uh, the point that the Lord actually uses fires and natural disasters as uh, part of, of his sovereign reign, that he can even rein those things in. And so what's being presented here in Psalm 104 uh, with this citation of the angels is again the implication, people say, of the Hebrew text, sort of a, making a translation or bringing the Hebrew into Greek and, and making the intention of what the Hebrew is getting at, that the angels do the bidding of God. All natural disasters are doing the bidding of God. He's still sovereign over all of creation. And so he wants us to understand, as he's mentioned, of who Christ is, being more superior, more excellent. He's the one who upholds the universe by his power. 1 verse 3, we're getting at that prosecution now. The angels merely do what God sends them to do. The kings of this world are still working within the confines of the Lord's sovereign power and what he allows them to do. Natural disasters still within the confines of God's power. He's still at work, and we have to remember, we brought this creation into its sentence of death. We brought this creation into its uh, condemnation and its curse. Uh, God doesn't have to preserve it, but yet we have this assurance that it's not just a father who's preserving, but it's the Son who's upholding the universe by his power, giving proof of his claim in 1 verse 3. Going on then, as we uh, consider verses 8 and 9, where now he talks about the Son, his throne, uh, loving righteousness, hating wickedness of this king that very much is this ideal king. Uh, so when you look at Verses 8 and 9, this is a citation of Psalm 45, 6 7. Psalm 45 is, is a love song for the king, really, if you read Psalm 45. And it's praising the king and the ideal king. Uh, if you go on after this, in verse 10 of Psalm 45, you have Israel presented as a bridegroom, which again, you think of Christ uh, doing his parable, the bride's uh, making themselves ready for the bridegroom to come. You can understand how Israel, being the bride, waiting for her king uh, to lead her, you can have the urgency that, that, that's calling to Israel's attention in that parable, the reality of the bridegroom still coming, so be ready. Psalm 45 is very much along uh, this order of this love for the Lord as Israel is loving her king, the ideal king. Now it's more than what we can think of just with David. I mean, David, by and large, was 
presented as the ideal king, but he still had his moral failure and he had his failings. He was still a human being. Psalm 45 is, is a psalm that in a tradition would be a messianic psalm, waiting for the anointed one of God, waiting for the king to arrive. And so the assurance in verses 8 and 9 is that this king, Jesus Christ, who is from all eternity, who has entered into this world to fulfill the Davidic promise from Psalm 89, 2 Samuel 7, is the one that Psalm 45 is written about. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, let's continue to develop this. The son's superior to David because he's a fulfillment of this. David's looking to this reality. He's the one who loves righteousness. He's the one who turns away from wickedness. He is the one who has been anointed. He is the one who will triumph. And so all this praise that Israel would have for the love of their king is being ascribed to Jesus Christ. And so again, this is why we worship our God. This is why we worship our Christ. Going on then, verses 10 through 12, we have this uh, citation uh, from Psalm 102, 25 through 27. And this is where uh, the author again is reminding us of the reality of who the Lord is. And uh, he's going to be one who may be deviating from the Jewish tradition a little bit as they may not fully have an understanding that the Messiah is God. They may, they may not. They may have a different picture of him. But this picture here is that reminder that this Messiah who enters into history is a one who is part of this creation. So again, 1 verse 3, knowing the one who upholds this universe by his power, here we have this ascribing uh, this praise to who God is. Majestic, mighty, the one who lays the foundations of the earth, uh, the one where you have the things of this creation will perish. So it's it's inferior, right? This is what impacts what I said in the introduction. Our expectation is things will not endure. Why? Because we enter into creation under the fall, under the common curse. So our expectation, there's a cycle of life. Things come to life, they die. That's what happens no matter what it is, no matter how well it's designed, no matter how well it's engineered, it will not endure. That's what this psalm is contrasting. That is, creation's going to be rolled up. It's not going to endure. But there is one who will, Jesus Christ, for he is superior to all. And so, when we look at verses 7 through 12, we see, okay, first he's a son. Now we understand, okay, the son's superior to this creation. He's not like the priests. He's not like this world. He stands above it. He's sovereign over all. And so we say, okay, well then, what, what is so significant about this son? Why do we want to bow down to him? Why do we want to serve him? We, we understand he's God, and, and that might be reason. We understand he's superior to this creation, not just the angels, but to all things. But then what, what about his faithfulness? Well, what do we know of him? This is where verses 13 and 14 are so significant. Because we can see that the purpose of verses 5 through 14, again, 2, 1 through 4, building on the implications of this. But verses 5 through 14, you have this inclusio, where you have now the question that began this section. To which of the angels has he ever sat? So we've moved from, okay, 
We know that he's son of God intrinsically in his person. This is who he is. He is son of God. We know he's superior, but why is he superior? Because we have in verse 13 this wonderful declaration of enthronement from Psalm 110. And his enthronement is that the father turns to this one who has served him perfectly and says, sit at my right hand. Now, this is where we get our statement or our saying, the right-hand man, right? This is the individual you trust with your life. This is an individual that no matter what, you know this individual is going to defend you no matter what. You turn your back to him. You will sleep to the, next to this individual. You, you have no fear of what this individual will do to you. And so this sitting at my right hand is a king saying to another, you are my right-hand man. You are my go-to person. I trust you with everything. No angel has had this position. No creature has had this position. David did not have this position. There is only one who has this position, Jesus Christ. And as Jesus Christ being the one in the beginning of Psalm 2, where we have this or Psalm 2, the first citation in this section, where you have the kings conspiring, kings coming against the Lord. Now you have the accomplishment of the Son validating what the Father has said. You are my Son, with whom I am well pleased, as he says at the baptism and transfiguration. Here in, in this citation in Hebrews 1, verse 13, as Psalm 110 is cited, this is David turning and saying to my Lord in Psalm 110. Think about that declaration. David himself, the ideal king in the line of Judah, who is to bring about the eternal heir, is the one who turns to his Lord. The Lord said to my Lord is the beginning of this citation. So it's David looking to the true one and is my Lord. So David's professing him to be God. And if you look at the grammar, it's, it's underscored in the original Hebrew. The reality of David understanding his low place, seeing the high place of this great God. And this declaration of sit at my right hand is now the father saying to this king that he has accomplished his work. He enters into the throne room of God. So this is the uniqueness of this king, that he's a priest king. He's beginning to lay the groundwork to this theology in, in his exhortation. He's not just king, he's a priest king. He, he resides in the palace of God. Psalm 110 introduces to us that concept of the order of Melchizedek, a superior order uh, than Levi, the, the priestly order that never ends. So this Citing of Psalm 110 recalls all this theology and calls us to our mind that he is enthroned in glory. He has accomplished the work the Father has given him to do. He has proved the claim that he is a worthy son. And he is the one who will make all the enemies a footstool. So Psalm 2 hasn't found its full fulfillment in the sense that all the enemies are put down and the glory of God is manifested. It's the assurance that this will be done. So now in verse 13, we, we understand this. We understand the significance of who this Christ is. Upholds the universe of his power. 
But remember what else was promised in verse 3. Makes a purification for sins. That he is the one who makes it so we can draw near into the most holy place, the heavenly throne room, the great temple of the living God as his redeemed people. But notice then this summation in verse 14 very briefly. That he wants us to understand and say, okay, so what's, what's the contrast? What's the significance? Verse 14 is where the author of Hebrews, we think of him putting his arm around us. Where we can imagine ourselves being in a position of saying, I want to go back to the priesthood. I want to go back to the temple. I want the tabernacle. I want Moses. I want to see the, the, the cloud fall down in the tent of meeting. That was something tangible. The author of Hebrews comes to us, puts his arm around us, and he says, listen, are not all these angels just ministering spirits? Don't we see that? They're not just serving the Father, but they're doing the will of the Son. The Son sends them out to minister. And to whom? Who receives the blessing of this? To those who are to inherit salvation. This means that the inheritance that the Son has won being seated in the throne room of God at the right hand of the Father is an inheritance and a salvation he gives to us. We say, well, who receives the purification then? Here he's prosecuting the point. This one-time work as a priest king in the order of Melchizedek fulfilling the promise made to David is what secures our salvation. It means it guarantees that we will pass from this age of testing, this age of curse, this age of pain to the age to come. And we will pass into that heavenly glory much like what we have with the recollection of Psalm 97, beginning the sojourn, Psalm 93, Psalm 100, entering into the presence of God as his sheep, singing praises to him, but going into the heavenly temple. These angels are sent by the command of God to serve his people. Which shows that as these angels, which we may think are so high and exalted, and they are, they dwell in the presence of God. But these angels are sent out to serve the saints that Christ has come to redeem. So that we will inherit the intention of what the Father has for us. We do not need another sacrifice. We do not need to purify ourselves. This is the beauty of the introduction. He has made this purification. We're called to sojourn and to orient ourselves in the promises of God as those destined to inherit the salvation that Christ has won and applied in the power of his spirit. And so in conclusion then, how do we know that Christ really is sufficient? Well, the author of Hebrews is saying simply, have you read the Psalms? Have you considered the implications of what the Psalter is telling us? The exhortation is simply, as we just survey a few of these Psalms, and we think about the context of these Psalms and what they promise, do you not hear the substance of them? It is Christ who confirms this prophetic word. And as he confirms this prophetic word, he shows himself not only intrinsically to be faithful son of God because of who he is in his person, but he proves it in his work. 
And as he is now seated at the right hand of God, we need to recognize that we are in a different place in covenant history. A place where as we undergo this sojourn, we are not sojourning to an earthly land of Canaan as a model. We are sojourning to the reality of heaven itself. Because the great Melchizedekian priest is enthroned in the heavenly temple, the palace of God, having made a definitive redemption. And we are those who will inherit what he has won on our behalf. And so the author of Hebrews then is calling us to realize our human temptation is to think we need more than Christ. Our human temptation is to think somehow Christ is not enough. Our human temptation is to think more is better because everything has an expiration. It is truly out of this world beyond our comprehension to believe that there is something done that has no expiration. And the author of Hebrews is saying that's what makes a redemption so precious and valuable. Because that one-time purification for sins is sufficient for us to draw near into the presence of our God. We have been purified in him. Let us then sojourn and wander through this age, not as meandering people who are lost, but as those who are being led by the Son of God in his person, but led by the faithful Son of God, who has done the work that the Father has given him to do, as a great Melchizedekian priest who has accomplished his work once for all. Let us sojourn and walk in the confidence that that work truly is all that we need to arrive at the fullness of the trueness of Psalm 100. Amen. Thank you for watching or listening to our podcast. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing church that seeks to cultivate community around our Savior. If you desire to learn more about Christianity, please join us for worship each Sunday at 10 in the morning or 6 in the evening. You can do this in person or on our live stream. You can also utilize our archive sermon series on our website, urcbelgrade.com or subscribe to our current sermon series through most common podcatchers. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you. Thank you.